We are living in a social ecological crisis in which inequality within and between countries is on the rise, and climate change worsens year on year, affecting the lives of countless humans and ecosystems around the world. Business as usual means heading towards ecological collapse, and the technological solutions being put forwards are insufficient. When one looks at the roots of the issue, the pursuit of economic growth based on a system of exploitation and the domination of others emerges as a key driver fueling this fire. The recognition that men have played a protagonic role in developing, benefiting from, and upholding this growth exploitation paradigm leads us to question, what might a non-exploitative paradigm look like? What new roles might men play in bringing it into being? And what challenges might they face in the process? Welcome to the Sustainable Masculinities Podcast with your host, Pierre smith Khan. Today, we speak with Martin Holtman, Associate Professor in Science, Technology and Environmental Studies at Chalmers University in Sweden. Martin's research focuses on the influence of extremist views such as sexism and far-right nationalism on climate change denial. He has developed the new field of ecological masculinities together with Paul Poulet, a concept they explore in their book Ecological Masculinities, Theoretical Foundations and Practical Guidance, which chronicles the political landscape that has shaped the industrial breadwinner and eco-modern archetypes of masculinity. His latest book, the edited volume Men, Masculinities and Earth, Contending with the Manthropocene, is an anthology which builds on this previous work, deepening the framework and broadening the horizon of ecological masculinities. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah, thank you. Martin, I would like to start by asking you if you could share with us a bit about where you are right now. Uh, geographically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you feel like sharing. Geographically, I'm in Gothenburg, Sweden, um, and uh, have some pine trees um, outside of my window uh, nearby a big forest here in Gothenburg. Um, emotionally, I'm uh, quite connected to my son's life currently because um, he's going to change school and also he's going to change uh, the football team that he has been playing with for a while. So we have been talking a lot about that. Um, and uh, spiritually, um, I'm thinking quite a lot about uh, the cook meeting that next week and um, uh, what is happening there. Uh, so I'm both kind of, um, yeah, I'm, I'm anxious uh, to see what, uh, what what's going on there, even though I at the same time know that it's not going to be the change there that is needed. So. Yeah, those are my feelings and where I am currently. Thank you. Martin, uh, a lot of your work has to do with men and, and the environmental movement. And um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about this, because earlier I've spoken to some environmental activists, uh, Manuel Grebenjak and Mira Koppinger, who are activists at the Stay Grounded Anti-Aviation Network. Mm. And we kind of spoke about how, well, women are overrepresented in a way in the environmental movement. And and also the few men that are involved in the movement tend to take up more space than perhaps they should. And I wondered, um, from a masculinity's perspective, how do you perceive this? Why, why do you think it is that um, there are not so many men involved in the environmental movement? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, 
it definitely seems so um, that currently and since a few years back, um, women, uh, if we speak in these binary terms, men and women, uh, women um, have gotten to know about the challenges, environmental challenges and climate change and, and that type of knowledge much, much more. And they take it into account. They uh, make it part of their life. And um, women also tend to act more on that knowledge than men uh, currently. And um, <clears throat> it seems to be a trend all over the global north. Uh, it's actually not this uh, so similar trend in, in the global south, uh, but in the global north, uh, definitely so, that women tend to be more engaged in, in environmental issues than men. Um, when it comes to leadership, we have also seen uh, a very uh, strong rise in women leadership regarding environmental issues the last couple of years. We see women leadership in green political parties. We see the women leadership in environmental organizations. We see women leadership uh, among the young uh, ones in the Fridays for Future movement and so forth. Um, so definitely men has something to, to, to be work on here and be aware of and, and also uh, to think about uh, much deeply. So why is this so? And um, from my perspective, I have seen in my empirical research on climate change denial uh, that the type of knowledge about environmental problems and the need for tra uh, uh, rapid transformation of the society um, seems to make men more than women uh, uh, anxious about what is going on and, and uh, a bit afraid uh, sometimes. And also that they, that they not even take that research uh, for real. So they find uh, counter uh, knowledge and, and uh, spread by different types of think tanks and spreading thereby spreading doubts about climate science. Um, so definitely the, the analysis is, is quite clear and the, picture is, is quite clear in that sense. Um, so why is this so then? Um, I think there is a structural component to this. Um, we know that men are more workers in uh, fossil fuel and extractive industries. Mm. Um, men also work much, much more in uh, the uh, car industry and the construction industry and other sectors uh, that are having really high uh, emission levels from uh, from their businesses so i and we also see that in different regions that are fossil fuel dependent extractivism regions for example the appalachia in the us and the uh, some of the uh, Poland regions, um, males tend to be uh, very dismissive towards uh, the climate science knowledge, for example. So I think there is a structural component here that uh, males more than women uh, work in these type of uh, businesses that actually needs to transform hugely and some might even need to be composted or need to be be totally changed if, if we're going to take these uh, issues mm -hmm. for real uh, for the climate emergency for example mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> then i also think that there is an aspect of uh, men not being trained in uh, a caring capacity in the same way as women are and that in the values connected to uh, being a man or how you understand yourself as a man, um, it 
carrying capacities it's is not um in the same way as for for women um accepted to be uh, distinct or a big part of your identity um and uh, especially not coming if we think about environmental issues so there's been some uh environmental sociology and environmental sociology studies uh, showing that uh practices um of environmental care uh, is looked uh, upon as, as suspicious if it's connected to maleness um so um collecting your uh Uh, garbage and sorting that out for example your your waste um so that's kind of both on a structural level and employment and also on a kind of value level or what is expected to you uh, i think those two play in uh, in in why men and females are engaging differently uh, with the knowledge about environmental problems currently yeah that that last point you mean uh, men who engage with um seemingly environmental behaviors would be looked upon suspiciously because it's not yeah related to a sense of what gender male gender is supposed to enact yeah so there's been some research uh on this in in the US um in which um Yeah, environmental friendly behavior has been looked suspiciously if it is a man mm-hmm. who are pursuing it uh, it's uh, compared to a woman uh, mm. in one of your writings you mention how in the environmental movement there are of course a plethora of different masculinities and yet one seems to dominate or or take over from the rest which is what this so-called eco-modern masculinity mm. now coming from a, a degrowth background no we're very familiar with eco-modern discourse mm. and i wondered if you could speak a bit to the relations mm. that you perceive between eco-modernism as a discourse and eco-modern masculinities mm. yeah so i came into this field uh from a more structural or more like a discourse perspective um so my dissertation was on swedish energy and environmental politics 1978-2005 and i followed a technology called fuel cells and hydrogen there uh, understanding how that uh, changed along the discourses uh, kind of um, describing and and enacting it So uh eco-modern discourse or ecological modernization which is uh, another name for the same uh things uh was where I started uh, critically looking at that eco-modern discourse um which we know was put in place uh, after the <coughs> Brundtland report and the sustainable development ideas and uh, came into dominance in the beginning of the 1990s at least in Sweden in which uh, uh, growth were again put at the center of the society's development as the idea of uh, uh, having growth that they could then solve via the economic growth could solve environmental problems but there are also other aspects of the eco- in the eco modern discourse um for example there was a focus on the emissions instead of system changes so um for example in the <clears throat> in the, uh, the the car system or the the transport system uh, before 1990 there was a lot of discussions regarding changing the transport system but when the ecomodern discourse came into dominance in Sweden that changed and it, so the focus went became towards the emission and then electric cars or hydrogen cars mm. became the kind of solution for it um 
the Ecomodern discourse also uh, turned the idea of uh, renewables, which in the 1970s and 1980s was connected to small scale technologies and and uh, like uh, ideas of, of using the energy in a much more um, care, not caring, but using um, and free flowing energy uh, in a small scale that didn't affect the rivers or the the landscape in that much uh, mm-hmm. big way, and and the eco modern discourse like took that um, renewable energy and turned it into large scale technologies which we which we see today are uh, uh, wind parks and those kind of things. So mm-hmm. that was where I started uh, looking very critically at what that the eco modern discourse, in my view, kind of greenwashed the industrial modern society instead of transforming the industrial modern society as was proposed in the 1970s and the 1980s. So, and then from that, I read a lot of <coughs> gender uh, and, and ecofeminism also in my, uh, when I did my uh, master's studies and, and in the beginning of 21st century when I did my PhD. And I found that connected to fuel cells and hydrogen was this person, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he was kind of used in the Swedish context as a hero uh, regarding environmental issues. And I became really curious. So how could this be? Like, because Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't fit at all with the image of... uh, the, the Swedish man and the, the, the ideas of how to be a Swedish man. Um, it was kind of an, um, uh, a, 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 a strange, <laughs> not a shock. Yeah, maybe a shock, but a strange situation in, in which Arnold Schwarzenegger is portrayed as the environmental hero and, and we should everyone follow him. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then that combination with the kind of Swedish environmental movement and, and uh, solutions was, yeah, it was a m- mismatch that I didn't really understand in the beginning. But it was actually this mismatch, which was the, the kind of perfect match for the eco-modern discourse. Um, so, so in that sense, they could use the idea of this strong leader who were just pointing with his own hand and and uh, create and and uh, creating and supporting this uh, few uh, technology which could just take away all the emissions like just like that um so it was kind of a perfect match for being a man within and with this eco-modern discourse um, mm-hmm. So therefore, eco-modern masculinities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to give the listener uh, an image of, of how that uh, comes across in in your work, is you, you speak about the the case of his uh, Arnold's Hummer, yeah. you know, like this huge gas-guzzling yeah. monster, yeah. Yeah. where he just turns, he just flips it over and greens it by saying, "No, we're going to make it a cell fuel." Yeah, uh, powered vehicle, and yeah. hey, look at now we have the green yeah. Hummer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's um, it's a very explicit image of this mm. uh, greenwashing uh, of this Hummer. Yeah, very true. This kind of preempts my next question, which was the speaking about the the dangers of cooptation, which you just alluded to. Mm thinking in the context of the COP coming up next week, where mm. we're probably going to hear a lot of um, different variations on technologies that will guarantee us a safe future and um, yeah. different words that will be co-opted for, for different ends. I wondered if you could speak a bit to to that danger that is so well embodied by Arnold Schwarzenegger and how his identity changed from you know the the super mega macho man who's just very strong and says a few words on screen 
to how that progressed to the caring Arnie yeah. and and how yeah what what can we do faced with this ease of cooperation yeah so uh, <clears throat> I've written a new piece about Arnold in our uh, anthology that has just been published men masculinities and earth and um I discussed there how Arnie um, uh, is and created an alliance with the Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future movement and actually highlighted her and uh, and helped her to speak in, in various types of elite um, uh, elite with elite groups and. Um, And I think it is an interesting example of, in one way, cooptation um, uh, by Arnold uh, and together with uh, the Fridays for Futures. Uh, but on the other hand, I also think it, it shows how important it is to understand the power in Greta Thunberg and Fridays for Futures and the environmental movement. Because if you are able to, to make such a big push and if you are able to gather so many people and, and if you are speaking the truth to the power, um, you can actually also in some sense push those in power towards something else than, than what they started with. So I, in this new piece, I'm both describing Arnold as being stuck in his eco-modern masculinity, but also that um, via and with the Fridays for Future push on the environmental movement, He has also recognized the importance of, of for example, um, stopping the fossil fuel industry and taking them, them to court, um, and also the importance of going vegan, uh, like changing his, his uh, food habits uh, and things like that. So uh, if you can create a strong enough social movement and environmental movement all over the globe. Change is also possible among those uh, males who are really stuck in their eco-modern masculinity, I would say. Um, so there's a, there's a possibility there, even if the cooptation is nearby, so to speak. Mm. Um, but I'm concerned of other types of cooptation, like ideas of nature-based solutions, um, which now seems to be word that is being some spin on that. And uh, I, those things who before were talked about like as geoengineering or um, planetary, uh, planetary engineering um, has some of those type of technologies has now been termed nature-based solutions instead. Um, and that is quite scary uh, when you when you think about like large-scale plantations and, and cutting them down and then burning them uh, in, in uh, incinerators and then taking away the carbon from that. That's called BEX. Um, mm -hmm. And that is now presented um, as, a, as some kind of nature-based solution, which is, of course, uh, not even close to a nature-based solution. Uh, yeah. And of course, net zero targets are, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the listeners to this podcast know how, <laughs> how, <laughs> how strange that is and how, how bad that is. Uh, mm. So I, the, I think that the, the knowledge we have from history is that we need to be aware of this type of cooptation and need to be 
we need to work in solidarity uh, with groups and and actually affecting the the politics from the outside so to speak um, um, one idea that I've been working with um, which I haven't seen any uh, uh, tryouts to be co-opted of lately is the idea of uh, ecocide law which mm. is um, the possibility of expanding um, the um, uh, Rome statue which is underpinning uh, the international court in Hague with the fifth crime which is a crime against ecocide, um, which would enable um, persons in leader positions who are uh, given decision to to um, uh, kill off different types of ecosystems, like the Amazonas, for example, to be put in front of court. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need to find those really strong leverages which are not really possible to co-opt and work with those really explicitly yeah i suppose the challenge is getting them approved no i remember in the i think it was last year or the year before the french had their citizens assembly on the climate and that that was actually a recommendation that they put forwards yeah to enshrine ecocide in the constitution and it's one of the ones that President Macron just shot down immediately and said, no, (laughs) not going to happen. That's very true. Yeah. It's those leverages that can make big change that also takes a huge effort to put in place. That's very, very true. But I I do think we need to aim for those. Uh, That's that's my conclusion of knowing what has not worked so far. the last 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is happening. I mean, the ecocide law is kind of the ultimate one. Yeah. But yeah. moving up to that, there are you know this whole movement for rights for nature, yeah. which um, has has made tremendous progress in the past five, ten years. Uh, different ecosystems across the world, yeah. including in the global south, rivers, you know, have been yeah. recognized as legal rights and yeah. have enabled communities there to to defend themselves against extractivism. Yeah, definitely. And the uh, Uganda case in the Netherlands and uh, uh, the case against the state in in Germany, uh, which also recognized the state of Germany to do much more and the state of of, uh, the Netherlands as well. So, yeah, there are are some really interesting developments, I think, uh, on on that kind of part of the environmental movement, working with court cases and, and the justice, uh, that's at mm-hmm. least a bit encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> um, Martin, I wanted to ask you about your book, um, Ecological Masculinities, which you co-authored with Paul Poulet, who, who we've had on the show earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul spoke already to the notions of industrial breadwinner masculinities and eco-modern masculinities and the ecological masculinities that you propose. And there was another section in the book that I, I found very interesting and I, I wanted to ask you about where you you speak about how these the industrial breadwinner and the eco-modern masculinity actually have negative effects to on men themselves, no, either emotionally or psychologically speaking. And I mean, personally, I think this is a very potent avenue to explore, to kind of identify the ways in which masculine gender, when, when it's enacted, can actually be bad for, for men. And as perhaps as a, another leverage point for, for change to happen there. I wondered if you could speak a bit to that. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> One kind of obvious um, comment is that um, men will also suffer from climate change and men will also suffer from the climate emergency and the 
biodiversity loss that we are in the middle of. So that's kind of the really, really big um, thing, I think, um, that even though we do not perpetrate the same type of slow violence against the earth, uh, we, we have um, various ways as humans as being perpetrator and, and if we are rich and if we are leadership of an oil company or if we are um, only a teacher in school or something or things like that. Um, but the effects of uh, this slow violence uh, will come and haunt us all. So that's kind of yeah the, the, the larger question, of course. Um, then we can see, at least in Sweden, I think the figures are the same um, all over the globe, but um, uh, men enacting industrial breadwinner in their masculinities tend to take uh, more risks. Um, so uh, men in Sweden, at least, tend to die more of of drowning, for example, and it, the, in Sweden there were more men hospitalized by uh, under the in in on the uh, COVID pandemic, um, and uh, men are also taking suicide much more. Uh, uh, we know that, and uh, men are uh, living shorter lives than women. Uh, and uh, so, so these are examples that you can think about uh, how also these type of hegemonic masculine norms and practices are affecting may the, the men who are enacting them negatively. Um, there are also research about um, uh, how if you uh, walk or go by bike much more when you travel around, you have a healthier life. And uh, at least in Sweden, men are traveling by car far, far more than women are doing. Um, and that connects especially to being a sales person as a male or, or driving trucks and buses and those kind of work. Um, um so that's also an aspect that uh, men are are in occupations and, and work situations uh, which are not really making them being the best their best self maybe regarding their their uh, health uh, so the, that's some of the, the things and then we also this is not connected to environmental issues, but it's of, of course connected to violence. We also know that even though, of course, there's a, a tremendous and huge big problem with male violence against women, um, male violence against males are also uh, a huge problem. And, and the people who get killed, at least in Sweden, uh, they are often killed by males, and they are often males who get killed. Um, mm. So yes, I do think that industrial bedouin masculinities, as well as eco-modern masculinities, uh, has their drawbacks for the men themselves, even though they also come with a, a huge lot of benefits, of course, to be rich and to be able to buy your buy big things and to 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 use the the nature mm -hmm. resources in the way that you want that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, like the examples that you raise of how um men can be negatively impacted. Mm. There a lot of them are are raised also by the men's rights activists, no? Mm. Mm. Um but of course, they are coming at it from a different perspective, or, or perhaps not, but they are mm -hmm. promoting a different 
response to mm. the same facts, if you will. Mm. I wondered if you could um, perhaps speak to that, taking into account you no know, or explaining a bit, taking it as an opportunity to explain and and flesh mm. out your concept of ecological masculinities. Mm. Yeah, it's true and a bit worrisome. Uh, we have seen such use of kind of uh, males as being uh, the person who you should think sorry for, um, used by the mythopoetic movement historically. Um, and it is, as you say, now that type of storyline is used by the, the men's rights movement. And um, what they are both missing uh, from the research that I've read and, and our own studies is that they don't really connect it to structural and um, societal issues and values and laws and, and and privileges. Um, so they recognize like one consequence of the industrial breadwinner and eco-modern masculinities. They recognize that and but then they blow it up to be the main part of, of why we sh uh, this is not good for men either. And then they miss the, the kind of structural uh, and uh, the, the privileges that this group also got, if you think about that group in relationship to, uh, to women and children. So here, <clears throat> I think that our way of, of promoting ecological masculinities is to deal with both the drawbacks of current uh, in industrial breadwinner and eco-modern masculinities, but at the same time trying to make a change for the better regarding gender equality and the environment. So th there's a there's a larger transformation needed uh, to deal with both gender equality and with environmental degradation at the same time as mm. also your identity as a man can change. And um, it has kind of three positive outcomes then instead of only one. You can, can come and you can connect with yourself and your identity, your diverse identity, and you can you can connect with your inner nature and outer nature, uh, and you can leave very destructive patterns behind if you're changing transformation towards ecological masculinities. But you can also be a better man in your relationships to humans and non-humans alike, and not as violent. Uh, and you can also thereby um, doing good for for the environment because we we really need to ch change and transform our identities and our practices and our ways of of being uh, changing from this fossil fuel capitalism that we are stuck in towards something better at least. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. In one of the earlier podcasts, I had interviewed. Ian McKenzie. I don't know if you've heard of him. He has a he's a filmmaker and, and runs a very interesting podcast okay. called The Mythic Masculine. Yeah. Um, and he mentioned something very interesting, like because he's interviewed dozens of of people on this topic, and one of the key learnings he drew from this was mm. the need for when we speak about masculinities for it always to be contextualized. No, that doesn't make sense for him to speak of what is, does it mean to be a better man mm. in a universal sense, but in a more specific contextualized sense, what does it mean to be a better man here today in this place and this culture? Um, 
And I wonder, just hearing you speak right now about the ecological masculinities, I wondered how how do you perceive this speaking to perhaps a wider audience um, from different cultures, from different parts of the world who are, of course, facing different um, realities and who already embody actually quite different forms of masculinity. You know, I can imagine the, I mean, right now I'm in Colombia and the, the industrial breadwinner masculinity here is very different from that found in Europe, for instance. Mm. Mm. I wondered if that's something that you have reflected on and, and would like to speak to a bit. Mm. Great fresh question. It seems like a follow-up question uh, on a question that I got yesterday. I was taking part of a um, course in masculinities that Susan Paulson runs on Florida University. And um, I was part of that course as a bridge in between the first part in which they have researched and talked about global south masculinities. Uh, and now they are moving over to global north. And, uh, and we were discussing the similarities and differences. Um, and we, we spoke about the term tree hugger um, it was a term that was not in the Swedish language before 1980s um, when men from the environmental movement started to hug trees and, and uh, tie them to the trees because they wanted to save a forest from being cut down and, and uh, being a motorway built in that forest uh, and Sus, because Susan started talking about uh, men and masculinities in uh, Ecuador, I think, where she has done some research, and in Brazil, uh, and uh, and the, the caring practices there. Um, so yes, of course, I definitely think that uh, masculinities needs to be understood as situated. Uh, and enacted differently in various types of actor network to speak with uh, Bruno Latour and others. Uh, and and uh, they need to be uh, also understood in a multiple way uh, that there are always m more, than, more than one. Uh, but maybe there can be also a way of understanding similarities if you have some aspects of ecological masculinities that you want to try out or see if there are in other places as well. But my empirical research uh, uh, has been carried out mostly in Sweden, some in Norway, um, as well as some in uh, collaboration with a uh, scholar in in the UK mm. but it that's a that's a quite narrow empirical scope so there's a huge uh, possibilities for a much wider empirical scope um, mm. of course the theoretical and the previous research and other research were underpinning the concept of of ecological masculinities is much more global and my the the ontological underpinnings are uh, this idea of the of the new materialism or post-humanities in which humans and nature are understood to be interrelated and connected coming from feminist political science and political ecology and of course, that is inspired very much by uh, indigenous scholarship, uh, that type of understanding. Mm. So, yeah, uh, as you say, uh, it needs to be understood situ uh, in, in, in situated in a way. Um, and uh, yeah, and maybe there's other types of conceptualizations that can can better capture uh, similar 
practices and values as we are uh, thinking within ecological masculinities in other uh, contexts or other other uh, geographical mm -hmm. settings. Uh, yeah, that's kind of important to to understand also, I think. Yeah, yeah. I sub I mean, it makes me think of a more broader conversation, no? Because I suppose it also has to do with the ways in which and the formats in which these things are spoken about in in Europe, for instance, are very different from um, other formats that are perhaps not necessarily academic um, and perhaps more local-based knowledge production mm. um, or even art, art and theatre and, mm. and song and dance, no? So mm. I think there's also a broader... I suppose epistemological confluence that has to happen, <laughs> mm, mm, if we can mm, put it that way. Mm. Mm. We we are trying to do some of that in in this new anthology, the men, masculinities, and earth. Um, so the contributions in this anthology are from uh, all over the globe, uh, even though not every second place is, is covered, of course. But they are from Nicaragua to Australia and to the US, and, mm. uh, and uh, so so there. This in this book, at least, that we are we have tried to to broaden the the possibilities to understand this globally uh, mm. in different and multiplicit way, of course. Martin, I came across one of your projects that really. It sounded very exciting, and I wanted to ask you about it. Mm. Um, it's called Under the Pine Trees in English, or Under Talarna, mm. which was um, kind of a, a project trying to examine ecological masculinities in practice, a sort mm. of workshop with men. Mm. And I, I think it's great that this somehow we're shifting from um, the theoretical world to trying to to put it into practice. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you if you could explain to us a little bit about this project and what you you did, what, what kind of work was done there. Yeah, great. Um, actually, I've been trying the last four or five years to, <clears throat> to collaborate very intensively with the civil society. So you said you had interviewed somebody on Flight Free UK, did you? Yeah. From um, Stay Grounded. I mean, they're based in Vienna, but there's an international network. Yeah. So um, the person who started Stay Grounded in Sweden, Maya Rosén, uh, she did that three years ago, I think. Um, that's one example uh, with the, uh, of a person or of a network that I've been collaborating with. So I've been able to help out with translations and uh, some of the knowledge input and... Uh, and those kind of things. Um, there's another project. I'm coming to this <laughs> the project <laughs> later on, but it's another project called Climb, Talking Climate, um, which is also a civil society project that I've been part of, um, translating knowledge input and, and partnership. And that. So uh, it, it has become quite a big part of my work. And I think... Mm. Um, even though as an, as being employed at the university and uh, as an academic in in, in also, uh, I think that working with civil society both gives me as an academic a huge amount of knowledge and and uh, new insights, um, and sometimes I can also give back in some sense to society through through that type of collaboration so this under the pine trees is uh, where i started to collaborate with an organization called men for gender equality in sweden and we got together 2015 for the first time i was invited to give a workshop uh, at uh, at that organization and uh, I came to talk with Vida Wettefalk, uh, one of the 
persons who invited uh, me to give that talk. And um, we started talking and, and uh, acting upon the question that this type of education uh, to ecologize masculinities um, had not been done with the starting point of feminist and, and gender equality at the same time as taking care of environmental issues. Mm. So this mythopoetic movement that I spoke to before, they had been doing this kind of going back to nature camps with male-only groups, uh, exploring maleness in together with other men in nature. But uh, me and Vida from the gender equality uh, organization, Men in Sweden, we thought that they didn't do enough regarding gender equality. And also we didn't think that they did enough regarding how to understand <coughs> uh, uh, human and, and more than human relationship. Uh, mm -hmm. Nature was mainly uh, used as a backdrop for the mythopoetic movement was our uh, experience and our knowledge. So we said, okay, so how should we do this differently then? Uh, so we first we thought quite a lot about where to do this. So we got together with the permaculture uh, garden outside of Stockholm. So there we found the kind of setting for having this type of uh, conversations among men uh, uh, regarding gender equality and, and climate change and environmental issues. And the setting was really important because permaculture is also a way to get grounded, to understand the, uh, the how, how the, the nature, how we can work with nature uh, to provide food and water for the community in a way that um, uses the excess of, of your cultivation of nature and, and do not extract, so to speak. Um, so they, at the, this permaculture garden, for example, they have um, uh, they, they measure their success in one way, which is interesting, and that is how much soil they are creating. So they, they, they have a measurement of of new soil uh, centimeters, and, and that's kind of a measurement of how how if it, if they are creating new good soil, so to speak. So that was a really good um, coming together. Me as a scholar, the feminist organization Men for Gender Equality, and this permaculture garden. Mm -hmm. So we had a. We, we created their leadership training in which um, the men had to confront their own privilege uh, and had to practice new forms of uh, um, ecological sensitivity. Uh, and they had to uh, also had practice like cooking vegan food or buying uh, ecological food. Or we also had... Uh, uh, planting tree sessions and we also had kind of more uh, honorings and um, uh, more, more more those kind of things uh, that we worked with and it turned out to be quite uh, a success uh, when we have interviewed the males from these courses they say that they have they have got to know themselves and their bad behavior, and they have also been able to share that with others, as well as then transform towards a much better behavior regarding environmental issues and, and gender equality issues. Um, mm. So we have done, there's a master student, he has done a master thesis on that, and... Um, 
we are now doing more interviews and uh, we have a survey also. There's a, an article on that as well. Yeah, so this is, it's. I think it's exciting. Um, I think uh, it is something that I would like to do more of. Uh, uh, it's also great to see things happening in, in praxis, so to speak. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm curious to hear a bit more in detail about, um, because I, I read the one of your papers about this project mm. where you kind of say that the men are discuss or are confronted with some of their behaviors and the costs of mm. either their behaviors or the social ecological crisis. Mm. And I was curious to know a bit more um, what kind of things came up for the men or what, what did they share mm. in terms of how they, how they felt and how these impacted them. Mm. Yeah, so one thing that came up was this driving of um, uh, uh, gasoline cars. Um, So that was one thing that was like put on the table. Um, Mm. So some men shared that, yeah, this is my job, I'm driving the car, I think I need to do that. Um, and it was, it was then possible to talk about that. And they were possible that they were able to put words on also that they didn't feel good about that. Um, even though they before wasn't really that aware of that, they didn't, that they felt bad about it. Um, and uh, this was also something that then led to some of them changing behavior and uh, maybe taking the bus more times or trying to create uh, an everyday life which didn't it wasn't so dependent on the gasoline the gasoline car um, some also uh, shifted to an electric car, which is of course very much more eco-modern masculinity, but they <laughs> shared, they shared it, um, in a car pooling with uh, mm. some neighbors, which in some sense then also bring down the, the use of the, the car and the materials needed, which is, is much better. I would, would say, uh, to, to have a car pooling and, and share that. Uh, many started to grow their own uh, vegetables uh, as well. Uh, but I also want to emphasize that it many talked about it that it affected also the way that they behaved in their family, that they took more responsibility for the for the caring practices, uh, cleaning and cooking and those kind of things. Um, and also, um, I know that one example, at least, uh, of a man yes, starting to talking to his, his parents in a totally different way. So taking care of the kind of relationships with, with uh, humans and non-humans was also kind of a, an interesting outcome and an important outcome, I think, of this. Mm. Wonderful. Well, Martin, I think we're um, coming to the end Mm. of our conversation today. Mm. Um, I wondered if you had any closing remarks that you would like to make or anything you want to share before we say goodbye. Yeah, I, I tend to emphasize when I have the opportunity like this, at the end of this type of conversation regarding masculinities, because in some sense, this concept and the, the, this conversation tend to become a bit focused on the individual. And uh, I think that both my conceptualization of masculinities is, um, 
working or or analyzing not only on the specific individual level um and also i do think that when we are trying to uh make change happen and transformation uh to to uh, be be something that we strive for we need to understand that we we have to have we have to put a lot of effort into changing the larger structures at the same time as we are discussing masculinity mm-hmm. so uh we, we we really really need to come together at this crucial time in, in history and aim for the the bigger things the larger transformations like laws like economic systems like infrastructures um and we can do that maybe together and we can do that via and and maybe together with changing masculinities as well but um uh, yeah not getting stuck on thinking only about the individual level i think is really important i want to emphasize that This podcast was made possible by the Junior Research Fellowship at the Zagreb Institute for Political Ecology. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next time on the Sustainable Masculinities podcast.